All right, students, welcome back to Lecture 5, Introduction to Homer's Odyssey, Books 527, Slides 74 to 99. We have a big day ahead of us. But before we get into new material, let's remember some old material. So, remember, Telemachus, first two books, he's at Ithaca. He calls a terrible assembly based on the idea of Mentes. Athena asks for a ship, is denied a ship, but eventually, with the help of Athena going in disguise as him throughout the city, he gets a ship from the man Noemon. Noemon who will also be the man that reveals to Antinous and Eurymachus, the leaders of the suitors, that, um, that he has lent his ship to, ship to Telemachus, and that Telemachus is in fact, um, oh, that's some water there? that Telemachus is in fact off Ithaca, and has started to transform as a character, transform from an innocent young man, who is sort of easy to bully, into something of a threat worth killing. In any case, Menelaus, when we get to Sparta, after having gotten to Pylos with Telemachus and Pisistratos, the son, the young son, the only son, I believe, that is still unmarried of uh, Nestor, we get to meet both Menelaus and Helen. We notice that they have some issues in their relationship. They're not quite of one mind with each other. Uh, Helen interrupts Menelaus at one point. Menelaus contradicts Helen with one of his stories about whether she really wants to come back to Sparta or not. And there are just some issues in the house. Also, they take a drug, Nepenthe, called Heartsease, because everybody seems to be filled with sadness. There are a lot of sad things that have happened, like Agamemnon dying, and Menelaus, and Helen losing seven years on Egypt, and Telemachus growing up without a father. War brings sadness, apparently. In any case, during Menelaus' story, he tells a, a, a very mad. There is a magical piece of the story, where he says that in order to get back to Sparta, he had to try to leave Egypt. While leaving Egypt, he went to an island called Pharos, right off the coast of it, and again, the winds turned against him, just like the winds turned against the Achaeans at Aulis. And so, he had to uh, starve for about 20 days, and then a goddess named Adothia took uh, pity on him and told him how to catch her father, called the Old Man of the Sea, Proteus. Recall that we have the adjective Protean, which means to be ever-changing, uh, from his name, Proteus. So if you are called Protean, nobody can get a fix on you. They don't really know who you are. You're always changing the sort of person you are. You were a punk last week, then you're a nerd this week, then you're a goth next week, or something like that. In any case, the Old Man of the Sea transforms into several different um, creatures and uh, materials before being allowing himself to be caught. He's first a lion, then a serpent, then a leopard, then a boar, then water and fire and the tree. And the idea seems to be that he like the truth, has many different forms. Well, Menelaus catches him and then learns that he has to return to Egypt and accomplish hecatombs, which means he's going to have to go backwards and acquire far more wealth than he has in order to leave, which means he's going to have to spend more time than he wants in order to get home, which is literally the last thing he wants to hear, except for the last thing he hears, which is, what are the fates of your friends? And, well, some of his friends have endured terrible fates. And now we know Nestor, Idomeneus, Marianes, Philatides, Neoptolemus, they all make it home fine, but not everybody. Aias Lesser, we know he gets hit by a storm that Athena sends because he abducted Cassandra in her holy temple. And uh, she was none too happy about that. In fact, she was so unhappy about that that she is the one that caused the storms that first, um, that first pushed the Achaeans uh, off course after they left, um, after they left um, Troyland. In any case... In any case, it's not just Aias the Lesser who has died in a storm, it is also Agamemnon. He returned home in Clytemestra, his wife, with the son of Thiestes, his uncle, who once had a claim on his land. Recall he has the scepter of Thiestes, he is the most uh, recent recipient of it, as we know from the Iliad. In any case, 
Agamemnon gets home, and this cousin of his, who has now seduced his wife Clytemestra, who is angry at him for sacrificing their daughter Iphigenia before Troy, uh, well, they've gotten together, they've colluded, they've decided to kill Agamemnon, they do kill Agamemnon, this is told to Menelaus, and now he's very sad. Not only is he sad now because Aes the Lesser is dead, as well as Agamemnon, but he also hears that Odysseus is detained on an island by Calypso. That means he is imprisoned, and that makes him sad. But that makes us happy if we are Telemachus in this situation, because we hear that Odysseus is alive and in a place. Now, he's not in a good situation. He seems to be off the grid, but to be off the grid is not the same as to be dead. And so this is useful information. This is helpful information. All right, and just a couple interesting things for those of you who like uh, mythology. Uh, the brother of King Minos, considered a great judge, Radamanthus is mentioned here. And a place that Homer doesn't mention more than this time is also mentioned, called the Elysian Fields. The Elysian Fields are an idea of a place off the map where you go to, it, it's like an idea of paradise. It's a heaven idea. And in fact, it's like a proto-heaven idea. And Menelaus supposedly is going to get to go to these Elysian Fields, which we will not see in the Odyssey, though we will see them in Virgil's Aeneid uh, in a more developed way. And we will, in a way, see them in Dante's Divine Comedy in, per, in Terrestrial Paradise and um, Celestial Paradise. Um, the idea is that Menelaus gets to go to these fields because he is the husband to a daughter of Zeus, Helen. But I think the real reason he gets to go is that he has to endure more suffering than any other mortal alive during the time that he's alive. Think about it. All of his friends who die, die because of what? Because of their involvement in the Trojan War. Well, why did the Trojan War happen? Because his wife was stolen. Could he in any... I suppose the question I would ask you is, do you think he lives with eternal guilt because of the deaths of his friends and the time that they have lost um, serving um, his cause? And, well, you know, that is my personal thought on that. In any case, I wanted you to know about Radamanthus. You'll hear about him again in Virgil's Aeneid. You'll hear about Minos again in Dante's um, Inferno. In any case, Menelaus, then, and this is a very interesting note right here. Menelaus, right before... Telemachus is going to leave, and we're going to leave off with Telemachus from books 4 to 15. After book 4, he, we're just following Odysseus around until he gets back to Ithaca, and then finally we'll see Telemachus summoned back by Athena to Ithaca, and uh, uh, Odysseus and Telemachus will meet. It will be a very interesting meeting. In any case, Menelaus invites Telemachus to stay around for 11 days and then to tour Argos with him. That is a great offer. Going around with Menelaus, a super rich guy, to see all of Argos, would be an explorer's dream. And Telemachus is the son of Odysseus. What do we know about Odysseus? He likes to explore. He loves it. Well, that's a great offer. Only problem with it is, does Telemachus have obligations bringing him home? Well, absolutely. His mother is essentially undefended with 108 suitors there. If he goes off with Menelaus, which seems like a very fun thing to do, will he be violating the Zinnia, or will he be violating even his own uh, familial relationship to his mother? The answer seems to be yes. And so even though he's given this incredible opportunity, he will be returning home instead. He is a man that fulfills his obligations. In any case, like I was saying earlier to you, uh, at the end of book four, we get back to Ithaca and we see a couple different events. The first one is this, this Noemon guy who first gave his ship over to Telemachus, all of a sudden he needs it. <laughs> and so he says, Antinous, Eurymachus, have you seen uh, Telemachus back yet? I need my ship. And Antinous and Eurymachus are like, what? <laughs> Telemachus actually took the ship? He's not just a little punk kid who's not going to do anything like Leocritus said? Oh, man. Well, Antinous jumps into action there. He's like, I'm going to get a bunch of guys. We're going to take a ship. 
we're going to set a trap around Samos, between Samos and Ithaca, and when Telemachus comes back, we're just going to take care of him, because honestly, he's standing in the way of what we want, which is Penelope. And remember in book two, during the assembly, Telemachus said, I can't just give you my mom. She's been living here for several years, and is my mom, and that's really her father's duty, Icarus. And so, uh, if Telemachus disappears, perhaps she will just give herself up to a suitor. That seems to be their reasoning. And in any case, uh, Medon, who is a herald, is a servant. Apparently, these, uh, these suitors, they talk too much around him. They don't take account of the fact that he's a human with ears and a tongue and loyalties. And so, they, they, they talk about this in his presence. Well, he's not loyal to them. He's loyal to Penelope. And that will end up saving his life um, later alongside the, uh, the singer. Uh, Phineas of um, um, Ithaca, excuse me, Odysseus's singer. I guess the suitors at this point. In any case, Medon goes to Penelope, and then he tells her the plot. The suitors have to kill her son. She didn't even know that her son was gone. And so this is a horrible thing for her to hear. Her son is gone, and the suitors are going to try to kill him, which means in her mind, because her life is tragic, that the suitors are definitely going to kill him. Uh, she goes to Eurycleia. She says, why didn't you tell me about this? Eurycleia bursts into tears. And says, kill me, kill me, but I was sworn to secrecy, or I was sworn not to tell you that Telemachus was gone because he didn't want you to worry, or, or to tell you after 12 days. And then they sort of uh, uh, make up with each other because that's a good reason that Eurycleia is given. She's still being loyal to the family, Telemachus there, who is, in a way, lord of the house. We don't really know who lord of the house is at this moment. That's part of the problem of the Odyssey. In any case, uh, uh, Penelope then cries herself to sleep. Um, which is a theme that we see reiterated over and over again. Her life is full of tragedy in the same way that Odysseus's life is full of suffering. They're both full of emotional suffering at times. In some ways, you might say that Odysseus's life is full of physical suffering, but you will see him have to endure the deaths of people who are subordinate to him and also called his friends. He will literally call his crewmates friends, Philoi, at some point. In any case, uh, Athena sends Penelope a dream to try and ease her. Uh, Penelope has a sister, Iphime, and she hasn't seen Iphime for quite a bit of time, and it would have been the case at this time that when you were married off, it might be many years or never when you saw certain family members again, because you would leave the land of your fathers and go to the land of your husband, especially as a lady, and you might not see that father for quite a bit of time, and remember how often these people go to war. People are dying very, very, very often. In any case, the dream says, don't worry about Telemachus, and then Penelope, she shows how similar she is, I think, to her son and her husband. Even though the dream has already given her a piece of information. And remember that the Greeks believe the dreams are sent by gods, though sometimes they are false, as we know from Agamemnon in the Iliad book 2. Um, it, uh, she says, hey, since you're telling me things, dream, could you tell me where my husband is? And then uh, Athena says, I will not tell you whether he has lived or died. It is not good to speak empty or vain words, and that is how the Telemachy ends. So, let's get to Odysseus. Bang! Alright, first let's start on Olympus. This is book five now. This is where we're supposed to be to start the day. Good thing we started early. Athena has been requesting and requests that Hermes be sent to free Odysseus. Zeus agrees, and then prophesizes that Odysseus will take a raft for 20 days to reach Scoria, where the Phaeacians live. His reasoning is this. Poseidon is angry, at Odysseus, and that's why Odysseus has not yet made it home. And yet, all the other gods like Odysseus now, so it's not good for one god to stand against many. So now Zeus will go with the will of Athena, and he will let Odysseus uh, make a raft, get off of Ogygia, make it to Scria, and then eventually make it back to Ithaca. He will use a very famous or uh, fast ship to get home. Uh, the Phaeacians make incredible ships. They're fast as thought. I'll tell you about them 
later date. In any case, while Hermes is down in Ogygia making sure that Odysseus is free, Athena is going to, at the same time, and this has already been narrated for us, be guiding Telemachus through Pylos and Sparta. So while that was happening, what we are about to learn was also happening. So that's part of the complexity of the narrative. You have parallel storylines happening. Very interesting. In any case, this is an image of Hermes meeting Calypso. A couple ways to always know Hermes. You don't always see all of them, but he has a very famous staff called the Caduceus with the two snakes. It can put you to sleep. It can wake you up. There is some hints of the medical art in that, that which is poison for one, maybe medicine for another. He also has winged sandals. Those were given to him by his brother Apollo after he stole his cattle the first day he was alive. Uh, the first day he was born, he was a thief and a murderer. He killed a tortoise. Uh, and uh, also he has a winged cat. Often. He doesn't always have all of these attributes, but be looking for those when you see base paintings and pictures of Olympian gods. Just like, a, um, just like Athena is always in battle garb, you will always notice Hermes has some sort of winged hat or feet, or at least the Caduceus. In any case, Calypso. As Hermes approaches Ogygia, Calypso is singing and weaving, and weaving is something that you'll see many of the women doing. We've seen Helen weave in the Iliad. We'll see her, I think, weave again here. We obviously know that Penelope is a weaver because of the stratagem of the shroud for three years that she kept, uh, that she used to keep the suitors away from her. And, well, Calypso is apparently good with the zinnia. She invites Hermes in. She doesn't ask what he's doing there yet. She gives him food and drink. Obviously, there's the food and the drink of the gods, ambrosia and nectar. And then she says, Hermes, what are you doing here? And Hermes is a little bit rude. He says, I did not come here by choice. There are no cities of men where they burn fat thigh pieces of oxen for me. So I came down here, obviously, because Zeus sent me down here. And what he sent me down here to do was to have you release Odysseus. This very much upsets Calypso. Calypso apparently, uh, there is supposedly a curse on her because she is the daughter of the Titan. Atlas, who holds up the sky, you see images of that, with like a world on his back. Technically, it's the sky he holds up, but usually you know, people show a globe on his back, because how do you represent the sky? Like a cloud, that doesn't look very heavy. In any case, Calypso says uh, she has a, a curse on her to always be alone. And so, when she hears that the gods, Zeus in particular, is forcing her to give up the man that she wants to marry, and that is the context here, she wants to keep Odysseus. She wants him hidden on her island forever. And in fact, she has offered him a few things. Painlessness. Painless existence. Two, immortal existence. And three, she says, hey, I'm very beautiful, more beautiful than your human wife. Why don't you stay here? And yet, even with all of that, a painless existence, immortality, and a beautiful goddess's wife, Odysseus is crying on the beach every day. It has been for some amount of time, possibly even seven years. He doesn't want it. And that is a big question for you to think about, especially before seminar. How could... The things that most people want more than anything not be worth re-entering life full of pain and suffering and violence. And yet still, Odysseus chooses that life over the life of ease. Very interesting. And we still have this book. Calypso lists a couple times that the gods have been jealous. Apparently it's okay for the male gods to lay with the mortal women, but it is not so okay in her estimation for the female goddesses to lay with mortal men. And she gives a couple examples. Orion and Dawn. Orion was a very famous uh, hunter. He is the biggest constellation in the sky, even here on the west coast. Uh, you see those three stars that are his belt. And the night sky is, I think, the easiest constellation 
to see, though it might be hard to see tonight. I think we're going to have some clouds. Supposedly we're having summer, winter, and fall all in one day. So we'll have to see if that actually happens. But um, apparently he was with the Dawn at some point before she was with Tithonus. Orion was killed. And then Demeter, Demeter with this guy named Yasion, who was Jason, or Jason of the Argonauts' father. Well, that didn't work out either. I suppose I could give another example. Supposedly Orion was beloved by Artemis, and then Apollo got jealous. And Apollo said, hey, Orion, you think you could swim out to the edge of the ocean? You could hear a stud? And he said, yeah, so he does. And that's uh, very interesting because that's very similar to a story about Beowulf from the Germanic tradition. He had a, a race through the, the, the ocean against another man, which he lost because he fought against a sea serpent. Which is interesting. It's like he had to fight against himself, and that's why he lost when he fought someone else. In any case, um, uh, Orion is swimming out there, and then uh, Apollo goes up to Artemis. She's a great archer. He's a great archer. They're gods of archery. And he says, hey, you think you can hit that speck off in the distance with a, an arrow? And she says, yeah, of course. Shoots the arrow, bang, hits Orion, who she loved, and he does. And part of the story is, if you are beloved by the gods, it's not always a good thing. Look at Paris. Look at Helen. Good lives? Highly questionable, even though they were both very beautiful and gifted by the gods. Look at Achilles. He's got every gift possible. Good life? Maybe. Maybe. Many good elements to it. He got to know Patroclus. But, you know, something worth thinking about. In any case, Hermes says, make sure you let this man go, otherwise the wrath of Zeus will get you at one time or another. And so, okay. Calypso says, yes, I will allow him to go, but I will not give him safe conveyance. He's going to have to build his own wrath. This is, of course, the poem about doing it yourself. It is the do-it-yourself poem. Uh, it, the immortals are present, but they do not do for you what you must do for yourself. It will be the case that Odysseus, even though he has the help technically of Zeus and Athena, will have to fight the suitors himself. Even though he has the help of Calypso and Athena here, he's going to have to build his own raft. And when this raft crashes in the sea and leaves him in the sea's waves for two days, he's going to have to swim himself. He will get a little bit of help from a goddess named Eno, but he will be doing the work himself. Remember also Telemachus. He's getting bullied. Athena gives him advice. Who has to deal with the bullies? Telemachus. The idea here is that the gods do not do for you what you can do for yourself. In fact, they often just give you good advice. you got to do this if you want this in the world. In any case, something interesting about Odysseus. And you're going to see this again today, possibly even twice more today, is that even when a goddess tells him something, he doesn't trust them. Because he understands how the gods and goddesses work from Olympus. They don't always have his best interest in mind. They have their best interest in mind. So when Calypso says, you're free to go, he thinks, mm, I don't know about that. Seven years with you? You say you love me and want to make me immortal? And now you're saying I can go out on the sea where ships wreck on a raft that I build? Are you trying to trick me and just get rid of me, goddess? And she actually smiles at him. She's like, oh, you're such a clever little human. I'm going to miss you a lot, you know, is the thing. Because uh, I swear on the river sticks that I am not trying to pull anything on you. Pause. All right, and we're back. And I accidentally stopped the recording, so I'm going to have to put it into two. Today. We'll see how that works. Actually, that's very easy to do. In any case, we're back. So, Calypso swears on the river Styx that she is not trying to trick Odysseus. So, he is going to get started making a raft for himself, and he is going to finally get to leave where he has been, been in prison for seven years. So, 
He makes the raft over four days. On the fifth day, he disembarks. He is a very good craftsman. Know that he was also one, he was the person that came up with the idea with the Trojan horse. He was part of the, the team that made the Trojan horse, though it was Apeus who gets credit for that. He also uh, built his own home and bed. So he's a man who works with his hands as well as with his head. Just like Athena, who's a goddess of strategy as well as weaving. It's as if there is a connection between contemplation and practicality. In any case, in any case. So, Odysseus, everything goes swimmingly for 18 days. But know that he's prophesied by Zeus to be on the water for 20 days. Well, what happens on the 18th day? Well, right as he sees mountains. And again, this is another theme of him almost being where he's going to go, get to. Almost being there and then uh, having something happen which keeps him from uh, where... Hmm, how do I even put this? Something big often happens that keeps him from getting where he is going. We'll see this um, in, when he gets the bag of winds from Aeolus, when he gets right inside of Ithaca, and then is blown away. And here he's right inside of Scoria, and he doesn't get blown away, but he, uh, he does have a storm hit him. And in any case, he sees these mountains, he thinks he's home, Poseidon then sees him. Apparently he's just turned his eyes back. He sees Odysseus on the water. He knows that the gods have decided to release Odysseus in his absence, in absentia, and then he sends a storm. Yes? What does it mean, send a storm to harry To harry one means to bother them. Yes. So, if you are harried by someone, they are bothersome. In any case, the storm hits. Odysseus is on a dinky little raft. The raft breaks. He grabs onto a plank of it. He's going to die. Until, oddly enough, a sea goddess, a nymph, named Eno. Oh, are you interested? How are you disappointed? So, Eno shows up out of the waves. Something interesting about Eno is that she was not always a goddess. She was actually a woman who had two children and a husband, and her husband was driven crazy by Hera, and he threw one of their children over a cliff's edge, yes, just like a Steanax, and then in order to save her second child, she jumped into the waves with him, and the gods took pity on her, and they turned her into a goddess. And so she becomes the goddess that helps out sailors who are in difficult spots, sailors like Odysseus. And she shows up to him, and it's very interesting. She offers him a veil, and somehow this veil will keep him from drowning under the sea for two straight days. First, he does not accept the veil immediately from her, because he's Odysseus, and he thinks, oh, I don't know about this veil, is it just going to drag me down to the edge of the water? And then a wave hits him, destroys his plank, and he thinks, well, I'm out of options, I'm, all I can do is trust this goddess. And so he takes the veil. And the veil does work. She gives him one interesting um, she, uh, proviso, however. After you have used this veil, you must throw it back into the water without looking. Two mythological connections with that. One is this. The Old Testament, after Eve has been made by Adam, Adam is not allowed to see that event happen. It's almost like when something magical or divine is being used across all mythology, it cannot be seen. And that's part of the magic. Of it. The other example is from the Arthurian legends. After Arthur receives his second sword, called Excalibur, not the sword and stone, they are distinct. He gets this from the Lady in the Lake. He is given one proviso. After you are done with Excalibur, you must throw it back into the lake, and which he actually has one of his knights do after he's fatally wounded by his uh, brother's son, Mordred. Uh, yes. In any case, I just thought I would share that with you. And so, Odysseus stays put at first, but the water destroys his plank, and then he has to, um, and then he has to take the veil, and then spend two days, two whole days, on the water getting back to Scoria. 
which I really just can't convey how long that is for swimming. 10 minutes of swimming in the ocean might be enough to drown me. 48 hours or so would definitely be enough. And so Odysseus finally makes it back to Scria. But once he's back there, that's not good enough. How does he get onto the island? It's slightly raised up. There are cliff faces on the side. In fact, they're very jagged. And the waves, they keep threatening to throw him into these jagged cliff faces and knock him out and kill him. You fall asleep or get knocked out in the water, you're probably going to die. And because you can't swim at that time, you have to swim in order to stay above the water and breathe. In any case, Odysseus very famously is described like an octopus here. He, he tries to grab onto the cliff face when he gets thrown against it. And it says that he leaves a layer of skin on the cliff face while doing that, like an octopus. That I, I don't think octopi usually live, or octopodes usually leave uh, skin on the things that they take. I think they usually take skin off, but that is the metaphor, or the simile, the Homeric simile that's used in this case. Uh, the idea is that he tries to grab on and he fails to grab on. Well, he's getting tired. He's about to die. He runs into the mouth of a river. The river, make sure I, oh yeah, no, I've already said. The river is apparently haunted by a god. And Odysseus has no option left. He prays, river, I have been through 20 days of water and I've finally gotten to this island. Please, please stop your current so that I can finally, finally go and make it to this place. And well, the river does stop its currents. And so he swims up, makes it onto the ground, kisses the ground, as you would imagine after 20 days on the sea, not even having to ship, finally making it back to the earth. He was definitely going to die. He didn't die. He kisses the earth, and then he has a conundrum. He's really tired. He sleeps next to the ocean. He might die of exposure because it's too cold. He might get too cold at night and die. That does happen to people, unfortunately. But if he goes into the woods, there might be lions and tigers and bears. Oh my, or hogs and boars. Something might kill him, some sort of predator. So what's he going to do? Well, he finds this really interesting bush. Kind of looks like that, kind of not. It's two intertwined trees. One is a domesticated olive tree, the kind that you find in a garden. The other is a wild one, the kind that you find in a forest. And yet they have come together in this case, and they create a canopy. And so he can get under there. He puts leaves on himself, and supposedly his life force is so weak that it's like an ember kept at the bottom of the ashes of a fire that you keep alive so that you can relight the fire easily the next morning. He's very close to death. Also, very famously, these two uh, shrubs together, these two um, trees, are sometimes seen as the two parts of man. The human is obviously on the one part animal. We do things like be territorial, eat, defecate, terrible animal things. And yet, we also do human things like speak, create music, enjoy art. And so, the idea here seems to be what makes a man. Some One part divine, one part animal, and we're like the weird mixture of those things between, which, you know, doesn't seem so untrue. In any case, book six and seven, and we're going to go pretty quickly through these because we only have uh, 15 minutes left. Now, welcome to Scoria, where the Phaeacians live. And you say, why? why are they not called the Scorians? And I say, because they're immigrants. They used to play, live on a place called Hyperia. Um, and they used to actually be giants. But now they're just like semi-divine, that means half-divine people called the Phaeacians. In fact, Dante seems to think that the Phaeacians are sort of like angels because he actually has Ulysses in Canto 26 of the Inferno die on his way to a mountain after a storm hits him. A mountain very much like the mountain surrounding uh, Scoria and, a, and waters very similar to the waters that Odysseus was just passing between Odigia and there. In any case, 
The Phaeacians once lived on Hyperia and they were neighbors with the Cyclopes. Interestingly enough, their ancestors are giants and their former relatives were Cyclopes. Both the Cyclopes and the giants were born from Poseidon. And so we will meet the Cyclopes at some point. They are very different. And we'll meet them in book nine from the Phaeacians. And I'll ask you some questions about the different ways their cultures have gone and I suppose their species at this point. Their ruler is was named Nausithous. He's the one that immigrated them over. He was the son of Eurymedon, who was a very foolish and evil giant king, supposedly, like a goblin king. Well, Nausithous led them to Scaria. Alcanoas, however, is now king because Nausithous sadly died. And funny thing about his name is Naus is where we get the word ship from. Navigate comes from that, or nautical as well. Um, Thoos means fast, like the word Theos. So it's like fast ship is what his name is, and that is actually what the Phaeacians are known for. They have ships which are as fast as thought. I'll tell you three interesting things about those ships soon. In any case, though these Phaeacians may be semi-divine, they're very much human in a couple ways. Meet Nausicaa. Nausicaa is the princess of the Phaeacians, the daughter of Alcanoas, and she is reminded by Athena in the form of a dream from somebody very dear to Nausicaa, that, mm, Nausicaa, all your clothes are so dirty, and the thing is, you're a whopping age of about 14, which means you're about to get married. How are you going to meet some suitor with dirty clothes? And so, Athena has put in motion the, or has used, uh, yeah, has put in motion the mechanism that will lead Nausicaa down to the river next to where Odysseus is sleeping so that they can meet each other so that Odysseus can make it back to the home of Alcanoas and be offered a ship to make it back to Ithaca. Apparently, even though she is not revealing herself to him, Athena is really working in Odysseus's favor. Remember, she was advocating for him on Olympus. She went directly to assist uh, Telemachus. She has here assisted Odysseus by sending a dream to Nazca, and she will soon appear to Odysseus as a young Phaeacian girl and cover him in mist. Notice these times. In any case, Nausicaa wakes up. She goes up to her father. She has a slightly delicate situation. She says, Dad, uh, I need to go wash everybody's clothes, not just her clothes, because it's kind of awkward for her to tell her dad that she wants to wash her clothes so that she can go get a new husband. He's been the big man in her life so far, but she wants another big man in her life, obviously the husband. And so she's kind of, just imagine whether you were going to tell your father you were about to go on a date with a young Boy, would that be awkward or totally normal? For many people, I think they would say there's a touch and element of awkwardness. In any case, she was ashamed to speak of her joyful marriage to her father. Even though Alcanoas sees through this and understands this, he does grant her permission. He is a wise king. In any case, Nausicaa and her handmaidens. This is very much like a fairy tale at this point. It reminds me quite a bit of the princess and the frog, honestly, with the golden bauble that falls into the, the well and the... Frog says, I'll get it for you, but you have to give me a kiss. And she doesn't give him a kiss. Well, not exactly like that, but similar in a couple elements. So, Nausicaa and her handmaidens go down by the water. Something interesting about that. That is a place of great danger for young women because, A, they would be unaccompanied by males who could defend them. B, pirates could come up by the water and abduct them. That is, it's a very uh, uh, a strange sort of situation, uh, historically as well as uh, 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 mythologically. Danger comes from the water, whether it be a crocodile, a shark, or uh, a man in this case. And so Nasca and her handmaidens go down for a nice little picnic. They take a cart, they take their clothes, they take a ball, they take some food. They're having a good time. They're actually playing a game of what's called ball. They're just throwing the ball at each other. And then Nasca makes a throw at one of her friends, and she drops it, and it goes in the water, and they all scream, Ah! 
And then Odysseus, pfft, his eyes shoot open. He's underneath these two bushes, and he thinks, what was that? Are these savages who are going to try and rip off my head, these young ladies? He doesn't know. Or are they kind and hospitable? He just does not know. Are these people that will try and kill him when they see him because he is a stranger? Or are these people that will treat him with respect and zinnia because he is a stranger? He doesn't know. But again, he doesn't have many options. Also, since, recall, he was on a raft and then he had to swim uh, in the ocean, he did not keep his clothes on. Uh, clothes take on water. This is actually something interesting. If you ever get in a quicksand, you've got to get rid of your clothes. It takes on a lot of weight. Uh, the more weight you have, the quicker you'll run out of energy. The quicker you run out of energy, the quicker you die. And so, when he was in water, he got rid of the clothing because he did not want to be weighed down by the clothing. So now he is very much naked and dirty and uh, old, really, too. And so, this is a great image of Odysseus with his leafy branch. Seeing Nausicaa and her women running away in fear. Total, total fear. In any case, Odysseus approaches Nausicaa covered with a leafy branch. He decides, I could at least be wearing something. And it's the branch. And so then he has to make a decision as her women run away screaming, do I supplicate her in the normal way, which is to run to her knees and put my hand to her chin? <laughs> or do I just stay here and supplicate her? I mean, that really is quite tricky. The convention is you go touch someone's knees. But the reality of the situation would be that a monstrous-like stranger who smells and looks gross is running up to you naked. Probably she would, <laughs> probably she would run away in horror from him. So he makes, I would say, a good judgment call. He chooses to address her from afar rather than to suffocate her at the knees. And, uh, well, when he speaks, he shows that he's no savage. He's no violent man. In fact, he very, very intelligently, uh, he, he says, oh, you, your parents must be so happy to have a beautiful daughter like you. And in fact, your parents might be gods because you look like a goddess to me. Ooh, and you know that Nausicaa's been thinking about marriage and being told that she looks like a goddess. Her vanity must be very much aroused in this moment. She's like, oh, okay, so you can talk and you, you kind of say some nice things. She's like, okay, well, let me offer some zinnia to this apparently civil man. Why don't you let my servants give you a bath? And so something interesting here. Odysseus knows that this is a young girl, a young girl who undoubtedly has parents, parents who probably w would not want to know that some naked stranger was among her, uh, was among their young daughter. And so he's very careful here. Even though it is the convention that servants wash, uh, wash guests as well as hosts, he does not want anybody thinking anything untoward has happened, nor that he has the wrong intentions in this situation. Obviously, he is not trying to abduct Nausicaa. He is also not trying to marry Nausicaa. He's just trying to get a ship and make it home. And so he says, no, I'll, I'll, I'll wash myself. And then he does wash himself. And my goodness. Bang. And I don't know if you've ever taken a shower and then done your hair up and then, and then you know, uh, looked in the mirror and been like, oh, yeah, 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 not so bad, not so bad. You clean up nice, me. Well, that sort of happens here with Odysseus. After his shower, all of a sudden he, he, he looks a lot more attractive. He's taller. Hey, hey. He's thicker, which means, um, more muscular. And his hair gets curlier, something you probably know about the Greeks is they're curly-haired people. They're not straight-haired. Uh, like so many Americans tend to be, uh, they uh, they have they have really curly hairs and curly curly hairs curly hair, which is described in this case like hyacinth petals. And so his hair actually gets curlier uh, rather than straighter. And well, he's just looking 
uh, more robust in general. And now Nausicaa actually literally thinks, if only my husband would look like this man. And so, all of a sudden, her perception of him has gone from uh, close to monster, naked, savage, to, hey, you kind of look like a god yourself, very handsome, you speak pretty well, say nice things to me, and you clean up nice. Hey, hey. And so, good job, Odysseus. He's done what he needs to. In any case, she says, mm, I, you need to come up to the house of my father. Uh, something interesting to note there. Interesting to note there is that after Odysseus's shower, what does he put on? His leafy branch again? No, he's offered clothes from the brothers of Nausicaa. Clothes that will actually be noticed by Ariti, her mother, uh, wife of Alcanoas, um, while he is talking, and he's actually going to have to explain himself very quickly in that instance. She's going to be like, oh, you met my daughter, and she didn't lead you up, and you now have clothes on from her uh, brothers? Why are you wearing her brother's clothes? You must have at some point not been in clothes around my daughter. What was the situation exactly? And he's going to have to explain that to her, and he will. Uh, but that's tricky. In any case, Nausicaa says, there are plenty of people in the city that you have to go through in order to get to my father's house. I don't want to walk with you among them because I don't want them to say anything untoward to me like, hey, look at this stranger. What is he doing in this city? He's coming to marry Nausicaa because apparently she doesn't love, or uh, the men from this city, from this island, are not good enough for her. So probably, and you need to have your composition notebook out, that's first day stuff, um, is uh, she needs to, uh, or excuse me, I'm losing my train of thought, admonishing students. In any case, uh, uh, ah yes, Nausicaa has sent Odysseus through her city by himself because she does not want anybody to suggest that she is going to marry him, which is a very interesting reasoning on her part. In fact, Alcanoas will chastise her for that. He'll say, that was not good zinnia on your part. You should have led your guest through the city, regardless of what people would say. That said, Odysseus is taken care of. He runs into Odysseus in the form of a young five-keying girl, and he says, hey, where do I find this house of Alcanoas? She says, it's super easy, but I'll show you. And then she drifts mist about him so that no one will see him and talk to him and says, don't talk to anybody around you. These people don't like to talk to strangers. And so Odysseus, unseen with the help of Athena, again, unseen to him or unknown to him, heads towards Alcanoas' house. All right. I suppose something that I'm mentioning here as Athena finishes showing Odysseus the way to Alcanoas' house, is that there are three attributes to the Phaeacian ships that make them especially good ships to be on. First one is this. They move fast as thought. They are also described as being able to get anywhere in the world within a day. And remember, these people didn't actually know how big the world was. So the world could have been infinite in size. And now we know that the world is actually one of many planets in a giant universe that's constantly expanding. It's so our world is like the universe, not just our world. And to us, it's pretty much infinite in size. And so, these ships can get anywhere? That's incredible. Second thing is, they know all places. So they can literally get you anywhere. And at rapid speed. And uh, let me see, what is the third attribute of them? They move very fast, and they know all places, and they can get you to those places. I think that's just the third part. They know all places and can get you to all places. These are super sailors. They are like the gods of sailors. But they're only half gods. In any case... Odysseus is told to be bold when he approaches the throne room of Alcanoas and to actually supplicate not Alcanoas but Arete. Arete. Uh, the, the reason being that people listen to Arete. She apparently has 
quite a bit of power here. She is beloved because of her wisdom amongst the Phaiakian people. What she wants for Odysseus will happen for Odysseus, so he better make a good impression on her. And so uh, I'm, I'm not going to make you learn this, uh, but I just gave a brief genealogy here showing that the Phaiakians are sprung originally from Poseidon. Then they were giants at first under Eurymedon. Uh, uh, now is apparently half giant or giant. His sons Alcanoas and Rexnor were Phaiakian. They're like human-ish. And then uh, Rexnor sadly died, but he had a daughter, Arete, and Arete married Alcanoas. So yes, Alcanoas is the uncle of his wife. And so that too, you know, that intermarriage amongst family members is again something that the gods tend to do. And we will see done by another godlike people called uh, the Aeolians on Aeolus's island. Six brothers will be married to six sisters. Not exactly to our taste, but something that Greek mythological characters are pretty into. So let's describe this house a little bit. I told you that these Phaiakians are essentially half-divine, semi-divine. Well, let's look at how their house is described. It reminds us quite a bit of how Menelaus' home, which was described itself as divine by Telemachus in admiration, uh, is described. There are golden doors, or rather, it shines like the sun and the moon. There are golden doors, silver pillars, everything is shining. And this place was made by Hephaestus. The women here are expert, expert weavers, like Helen we know, Penelope of course, and Calypso, and they have good character. The men are also excellent seafarers, and the land itself is very fruitful. There are pear trees, pomegranate trees, olive trees, apple trees, fig trees, which never spoil. And so fruit at this time, because there weren't candy factories, was essentially like candy. That's where you got your sugar from. And so having all these delicious uh, trees is a wonderful thing. Wonderful thing. In any case, Odysseus makes it to the throne room, and he grasps Arete's knees. He supplicates her. Please give me conveyance home. And so, this old man, uh, Achinios, a, a little bit different from who we ran into, Idionius in Sparta, says, oh, get this, get this Zinnia, get this Zinnioi, or excuse me, Zinnios, get this man off the ground. It's not good for a stranger to be on the ground. We need to give him a place of honor. And so, Alcanos says, yes, yes, so quite right. Uh, son, Laodimus, his first son, his best son, or his favorite son in this case, who knows about best. Uh, he says, get up. And that's as far as we're going to get today. We have a couple slides tomorrow.